The following message by Pastor Scott is brought to you by Together in Christ. But I'd like to share with you what we were looking at this week and give you kind of like a synopsis, a big picture view and a summary of what we dove in and what we saw in Ephesians chapter two, verses one through 10. And so if you have a Bible, please get it out and open to Ephesians chapter two. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the pew in front of you probably. And if you don't own a Bible or the one that you have is old and tattered and and it's fallen apart, please take that. That's our gift to you. We want you to have that. Ephesians chapter two, let me just read the 10 verses and then we'll just walk through and see what riches are in store for us there. Ephesians chapter two, verses one through 10, it says this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We approached this passage and we we looked at this during our week, seeing Paul as almost like a doctor giving us a diagnosis. Because even we as young people sitting up on this stage, they're old enough to see that our world is full of problems. Our world is full of hurt, it's full of pain, it's full of trial and difficulty, and you know that that's coming. And some of what we've seen is just a glimmer, it's just a a small fraction of what we may face in the future. We've all had friends that we thought were on our side but actually betrayed us. We've all had parents who we thought were solid rocks and when, but when we look to them, they've, they've disappointed us, people we thought we could trust. We see terrible, awful things happen to our friends in school when they're bullied, when they're hurt. We see terrible things in our nation and in our country that are happening, things that we never thought would happen. We see shootings. We see hurtful things happen between groups of people that seem that they can't reconcile any kind of differences. We're let down. And at some point you have to ask the question, what is wrong with our world? What is wrong with our world that makes all of this go wrong? What makes it seem like the bad overshadows the good in the world? The thing is, it's easy to ask those questions. It's easy to ask the question to look at the world and say, the world has all these problems. That person has all these problems. They have all these issues. They have done all these wrong things. But at some point we have to 
look at ourselves because we realize at the same time, it's not just, it's not just our parents that have let us down. We've let our parents down. It's not just our friends that have betrayed us. We have also probably betrayed the trust of our friends at some point in life. And it's not just those bad people that we go to school with that are capable of hurting people by saying mean and wrong things to them. That, but if we actually think about it for a second, there are probably moments in our past where we have said the mean thing. We have said the hurtful thing. And it's not just where we look at the world and we say, what is wrong with the world We have to look at ourselves and say, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with me? I I don't even like doing those things. I know those things are wrong, yet I still do them. Why? Paul, like a good doctor, in verse one, gives us the diagnosis of what is wrong with us. Look at verse one, if you would, with me again. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. There's your diagnosis. You're dead. Surely physical death is a part of the curse of sin in our world. But the death that's being referenced here is the spiritual death that came into the world when Adam and Eve fell, when they rebelled against their Lord and their God and they did not believe his word and they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They died that day, separated from God, no longer to walk in fellowship with him. And that same death is inherited to every single person that has come after them. We are all in a state of spiritual deadness where our eyes are blinded to the truth. And even though we know what is right and good, we do not have the ability to carry it out and to walk the perfect life that God requires of us. We are dead. That seems like a pretty, pretty bad diagnosis to be told that you're dead. And normally when a doctor gives you a diagnosis, and I, if I were to go and hear a bad diagnosis like that, my first question to him is going to be, you know, you're going to need to explain this to me a little bit. You're going to need to show me that I am dead. Like that's not just something that you put on the table without support. And Paul, like a good doctor, again, he does that. He gives us some support, almost in, in a way of showing us what some of the symptoms are of those of us who are dead in Christ. He continues in verse two. He says, in what you once walked, symptom number one, following the course of this world. Symptom number two, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And symptom number three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. Our symptoms are that we follow this world. As the world goes, we go. Whatever our friends are doing, it doesn't matter what the word of God says, we jump right in line with what the world expects of us to do. If the world expects us to behave in a certain manner, to jump on board with the latest trend and the newest thing, it doesn't matter what God's standards are, we want to be in line with the world. We want to be accepted, we want to be loved by what the world has to offer, so we jump right in. Whatever the world says that our standards and our goals should be in this life, whether that's amassing a ton of stuff or a lot of money, that is what we pursue and that is what we go for because that is what the world values. And so that is what we do. 
we follow the course of this world, not thinking about how it applies to the standards that God has given to us. We follow the prince of the power of the air. It's scary to think about the fact that as, as we are dead in our sin, living in the transgressions and sins, walking in those, that we are actually following the father of lies, Satan himself. It might not feel like that at times. We might never want to say, yeah, I'm a follower of Satan. We don't do that. It would take a lot for us to get to that point. We think of those people as just a really strange group over here that is really into the occult and wants to be Satan worshipers and they hate God. But actually, when we follow Satan, what we're doing is we're giving into temptations just like our first father did, Adam, when he ate of the fruit of the tree. We're listening to Satan deceive us and to trick us and to lead us in paths of unrighteousness. And when we follow that course, it's as if he is our God, he is our Lord, because at his prodding, we answer, we follow. It's the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And you might like to think that you've never been a follower of Satan, but it says right there in the word of God, the, the spirit that is working the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. All of us, before we were in Christ, before we knew him, were following Satan. But it's really easy to think about the idea that we're following the course of the world, we're following the prince of the power of the air, because both of those things is something that is outside of us. My friends made me do it. Satan was tempting me to do it. Lest there be any thought in us that this sin is not from us, that it did not originate from us, Paul leaves no room for that because of what he says next. The third and the final symptom that he says there in verse three, we lived in the passions of whose flesh? Our flesh. The passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. It's almost our very nature desires to live in sin and rebellion against God, pursuing only pleasure, what will be the next big thing, the thing that we love, the thing that we believe will make us the happiest, whether that is the desire of our body or the desire of our mind. We can't blame the world for our sin and we can't blame Satan for leading us astray from God because what we see is that we actually desire to follow where Satan would lead us. All the world does is provide the opportunity for us to indulge the sinful desires that exist in every single one of our hearts. That's all that's happening. And so those are the symptoms. The diagnosis is you have a dead heart. You are dead in your sins. You are dead in your transgressions. And that diagnosis is really important because if you get a diagnosis wrong, whatever kind of treatment you try to use to fix the problem, if you get the diagnosis wrong, you're going to use the wrong treatment. And if you use the wrong treatment, you're not going to actually solve the problem. But this is the diagnosis we're given. And if this is the true diagnosis, we've got a big problem. Because if you're dead, and not merely sick, you don't need a treatment. You don't need medicine. You don't need therapy. You need a miracle. If you're given a terminal diagnosis 
and the doctors have no hope that anything they can do, if you're too far gone, which Paul says we are, we are dead. You need a miracle. That is the only thing that will suffice. And just like if we were to receive that physical diagnosis from a doctor, when you receive this spiritual diagnosis, you need the same thing. You need a miracle. But praise be to God that the very next words in this passage provide us with our miracle. Just what we need. We need a miracle. Because as we are now, we're not only following the prince of the power of the air, we're not only following the world, living the passions of our flesh. We need a miracle because there is a consequence for living in that way. It says the very end of verse three, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In our current dead state, we sit under the judgment and the wrath of God. We sit as those who are one day going to receive his judgment for our sin. And we have no hope apart from God interacting, apart from God intervening, apart from God rescuing us from our sins. Sometimes we recoil at the idea of the wrath of God. We think that, well, God is not simply wrathful, God is loving. That's very true. But a loving and a good God punishes those who deserve to be punished. The same way we would expect our justice system, if it is truly a just justice system, would punish the criminal who deserves to be punished. If they did not do that, it would not be a good system, it would be a corrupt system. God is only good, he is not corrupt, he is wholly just. Sometimes I think we misunderstand what the wrath of God is because we picture the wrath of God being something like the Incredible Hulk, this giant rage monster that wants to smash everything in sight and is completely uncontrollable. But that's not what the wrath of God is like and that's not what it is presented to us as in Scripture. The wrath of God is much more like Captain America, just, level-headed, even-keeled, but always pursuing the right thing, always doing the right thing, even if it means the bad guy gets punished. We might agree with that even and say, yes, that sounds very fair. But the problem is we often say, I understand that God is just, I understand that God is holy and that a good God will punish the sinner. But that's not me. I'm not that bad. I'm not the sinner. I'm not the one who deserves God's wrath. It's those people over there. The problem with thinking that way is that you're comparing yourself to other people when scripture says, no, you don't compare yourself as a sinner to other people. You compare them to God. That is the standard, perfection. And for us to downplay and downgrade our deserving the wrath of God is to downplay the seriousness of sin and how serious God actually does take that. Sin is serious, so serious it deserves the wrath of God. And God's wrath is not uncontrollable. It is not unfair. In fact, the witness that we see in scripture is that God's wrath is consistent, it is controlled, and it is judicial. It's consistent because it applies to everybody equally. God does not play favorites. The same standard that God requires of me, he requires of you. God's wrath is controlled. 
In other words, the punishment fits the crime. God is not punishing those who are living in sin in a way that is unjust to what they deserve. They have rebelled against their God, their creator. And God's judgment and his wrath is judicial. It is right. And it is good for a good God to punish sin. And that's where we sit. We sit under the judgment of God. And if we're going to come out of this, if we are going to escape the wrath, we're told in the scripture to flee the wrath to come. Problem is we're dead and our legs don't work. Our minds are corrupted. Our bodies are corrupted. And so if we are going to get out of this, we need a miracle. And we find that miracle in verse four. Verse four says that, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have our miracle. These verses tell us that God has done three things for us of the miracle that God has done. He says, first of all, in verse five, that he has made us alive together with Christ. We were dead and God has made us alive We talked about at youth camp, the doctrine of regeneration and what it means for God to remove an old, dead, hard heart that is our nature and to replace it with a live beating heart of flesh that now loves the Lord and responds to his call and sees the glory that is in Christ. God has done that for us so that when we hear the word of the gospel, we are able to believe in faith and trust in him for our salvation. That is a work that God must do in us. We are dependent on the Lord giving us those eyes to see, giving us this heart to now believe the truth that before didn't seem obvious, but now we see it's as plain as this microphone in front of my face. It's easy to see, it's understandable, but only if your heart is alive. And so he has made us alive together with Christ. And then we see in verse six, it says that he has raised us up with him. How is it that we, as those who are dead in our sin, are made alive together with Christ? We have been raised with Christ. This idea that you see in Ephesians all the way from chapter one through chapter three is this repeating phrase of in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, with Christ. What you have to understand is this, is that if you are one with Christ, if you've been saved from your sin, you have been united with Christ to where the work of Jesus and everything that he has done. So let's just review review that for just a second. What has Jesus done for you? Jesus came to this world and lived the perfect life that you were completely unable to live. And if you are in Christ, guess what? That perfect life is given to you as righteousness. Not only has Jesus lived the perfect life that you couldn't live, Jesus died the death that you deserved. He he died on a Roman cross and he was tortured, yes, but the true torture Jesus received was the wrath of his father that was saved for us, but it was poured out on Christ so that it didn't have to be poured out on you. When Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, scripture says that we were raised with him, walking now in the newness of life. It's because of the resurrection of Jesus, you can be resurrected. You can be given a new nature and a new heart. 
And we find out a little bit later that not only have we been raised with Christ, we've actually been seated with him in the heavenly places. And so that Jesus, who was here and raised up into heaven in the ascension, he was now seated at the right hand of his father. What what do we hear in the Great Commission when Jesus tells his disciples to now go out and make disciples? The first thing he tells them is he assures them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to who? To me. Jesus sits on the throne with all authority and all dominion, having conquered this ruler of the world that we were once following, that we were once enslaved to. And so I hope that now what you see that God has done this miracle for us, you need to see a comparison that's going on. We were dead in our sin. We've been made alive with Christ. We were following the course of this world but we have been raised up with him and we are no longer part of this world. We were following the prince of the power of the air, but now we are seated with Christ in his authority, conquering Satan and all that he would lead us to do. The miracle that God, only God can do, he has done for us. Why would God do that for us? Why would God step in in that way for us when we needed him the most? What was the motivation for this miracle that God has done? Look again at verse four, and we see pretty clearly what the motivation was. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sin even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. What's the motivation? God is rich in mercy and God loves us with a great love. What it means for God to be rich in mercy, I've already said it before, it means that God has more mercy stored up for you to cover any amount of screw up, any amount of debt, any amount of fault, any amount of, of sin and rebellion, any amount of mistakes that you have ever made. Yes, you have made those, but our God is not a God that is bankrupt. He is rich and he has more than enough mercy that he is willing to shower out on you to forgive you of your sin. It is who God is. God is merciful towards the sinner, ready and willing to forgive. Why? because he loves you with a great love. How do you know that God loves you? It says that even when we were dead in our trespasses, God was not willing to send his son Jesus to this world to die the death that you deserve, to take your place on the cross because he knew that one day you were gonna clean yourself up. God knew that you were hopeless without his help. And you had absolutely no chance of being removed from his wrath if he did not send his son to do that for you. So God did not send Jesus Christ when the world was finally the way it should be, when you were finally the way you should be, when you finally cleaned up your life the way that everybody tells you, you gotta clean up your life. No, God sent Jesus to die for you when you were in the depths of your sin when you were in the most rebellious place that you've ever lived, when you, were ever, when you were the most helpless that you're ever going to be, that is when God sent his son 
to redeem you from your sin. Earlier this year, my, my family, the, the flu kind of came through. It was, maybe it was last year, I can't remember. But the flu come through. My sons had it, I had it. Thankfully, my wife didn't get it. But it was pretty bad. You know, little kids get the flu. Their noses are snotty, disgusting. They got fevers. They're cranky, they're achy. There's nothing you can do to make them happy. If I were a loving father and my son wanted me to hold him and to comfort him and to love him, and I said, no, 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 no. You need to wait until you're better because I don't wanna get sick. So you go to your room, you stay there until you're better, and then when you're better, I will come love you. I will come hold you. I will come snuggle with you and make you feel better. No. What does a loving father do? Loving father brings his son close, holds him tight, despite the snot that's getting all over his shirt, despite the fact that he will now probably get sick, despite the fact that his son is sick. Those are the moments when a loving father wants to hold their children the tightest is when they need them the most. When you are lost and dead in your sin and you think that you are completely unworthy of anything that God would ever do for you, let me just tell you, that is when God wants to love you the most. That is when he is calling the hardest. That is when you are more than welcome to come and to feel his loving embrace and to know that he is a father and that he does love you. And he loves you so much that while you were a sinner, while you were living in active rebellion against him, he sent his son to die, not for other people, for you to call you to himself, to call you to salvation, to save your soul from hell and from judgment. God loves you. That was the motivation for our salvation. That is what he's done. If we keep going in these verses, what we see next is what I would call the ultimate goal of God's working of salvation for us. Look at verse seven, the ultimate goal that God is working to achieve in saving sinners from their sin. Verse seven, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Why is it that God has sent his son Jesus to do this mighty work for us? Why is it that he, while we were in our desperate state, has sent Christ to save us to raise us up with him, to seed us in the heavenly places. It is so that in the coming ages, the immeasurable riches of God's grace will be on display for the whole universe to see. What God is doing in the work of salvation, in giving us a new heart, in enlightening our eyes to see the truth that is in Jesus Christ, is this, very simply, God wants to receive all glory from all creation to see how good he is, how much grace he has, and how amazing his grace is for those who would call upon his name. That is the purpose of our salvation. Yes, God saves us because he loves us. Yes, God saves us because he is merciful. But most of all, God saves us because he wants to be seen and he wants to display to all that he is God 
and there is no other, that he is loving, and there is no one that loves better than he does, that he is gracious, and there is no one more merciful than our God. Maybe you've seen the picture of the Olympic athlete Michael Phelps. I've been seeing a lot of uh, Olympic videos coming up, so we know the Olympics are coming up, but you've maybe watched Michael Phelps swim whenever he was winning all of those medals and seen the picture of him Maybe it was on some kind of magazine or just online, but he holds his arms out and he's covered, literally covered in gold medals. When you look at that, when you look at all of those medals that this athlete has won, what do you do? Do you say, wow, look at that medal. That one's a little smaller. That one's really shiny. Look at how shiny and beautiful all those medals are. Or do you look at the man wearing the medals in awe of what he was able to accomplish in awe of just how good of an athlete this person has to be in order to be the most winningest gold medalist of all time. You look at the man that has accomplished the task. And so when God saves us, yes, we are meant to be put on display to the world. That's what we're going to see in verse 10. But more than anything, what the world is supposed to see is look at their God who is mighty enough and good enough and love them enough to save them from their sin. Our salvation is meant to make God look great and look big. That is why our theme was called riches. Because what is put on display in the gospel and in Christ is that our God has more wealth than anybody will. And we're not talking about money. We're not talking about possessions. We're talking about his vast ability to save the sinner that is the most lost. Our God is rich in mercy. That is our God. How is it that God ensures that that goal of his glory is accomplished in salvation? How does he make sure that that happens? Look at verses eight and nine. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. How does God ensure that he is the only one who gets glory in our salvation? He makes salvation by grace alone. We are told in those verses that we're saved by grace through faith. It is not your own doing. It is not the result of works. So any of you that think that God will finally accept you once you clean your life up a little bit, once you rectify some of the mistakes that you've made in life, once you finally start making some good decisions, once you finally get rid of the addiction that you're dealing with, that right there tells you no. Because if you trust in those things, you're actually not going to be saved. Because if people were able to save themselves like that, there is no glory in it for God. God wants all the glory. He wants to, as the last phrase in verse nine says, uh, he says uh, that so that no one may boast. He wants to take away your ability to boast about your salvation. And if your salvation is anything about, well, I did this. I made this change in my life. I made good on this bad decision that I made. I did this, I did that, I I, 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 you're missing something. You're missing God. 
God wants to be the one to boast about our salvation. He wants to be the one to take all of the credit. And if we seek salvation in any other way, all we're doing is committing cosmic plagiarism. God is the one who's done it. God is the one who saved us. It is by grace alone, through faith alone. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. What is faith? Faith is a simple matter of trusting of believing with the sense of trust that I will only be saved because of what Jesus has done, not because of what I have done. That work that I listed earlier, that Jesus lived the life you couldn't live, he died the death you deserved, he was raised from the dead so you can be raised from the dead, and he is seated with God, and you will one day finally and fully be seated with God in the heavenly realms. That is the work of Christ, and if you See yourself and you say, I know that I'm a wretched sinner. I do not deserve the goodness and the mercy and the forgiveness of God, but I trust and I believe that in Christ Jesus, God can save me from my sin. That is what it means to have faith in Christ. And that is how God ensures that he is the one that receives glory in our salvation. And then we find ourselves in verse 10 the end of these verses. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. This isn't of us. We've been created by God. We are a new creation. The same idea that we see when we talk about the doctrine of regeneration, of God removing an old dead heart and replacing it with a heart of flesh that now beats, that is now alive and brings life to our spiritually dead state. When he says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That word created that you see there in verse 10, the only other time that word occurs in the whole New Testament is in Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one, verse 20. I'm gonna start at verse 19. It says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. The same God who created the cosmos, everything, the whole world, the foundations of the earth, It took the same power of the God who created the universe to make you a new creation in Christ if you have indeed believed and trusted in him for your salvation. It is the same power that is at work within you when he saves you from your sin. And as a new creation, you are given a new life. And a new creation walks in the newness of life Not like what we see in verses one and two when it says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Your life before you are in Christ is characterized by a life that is walking in sin, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, living in nothing but the desires of your body and the desires of your mind. But when you are in Christ, when you are made new by the power of God, You are walking in the good works that God has prepared beforehand. You are living in obedience to the Lord. You are living a life, seeking to glorify him with everything that you do, whether it be your job as a student or your job at work, 
the car that you buy, the family that you are a part of, the ministries that you are involved in in your church, all of that, all of these good works that you are given, you are not saved by your good works because you are saved for good works. And you as a Christian now living a life, living out these good works is meant to further display the goodness of God because when people look at you living your life and they see these good works, who is it that they glorify? Your father in heaven, the one who made you new, the one who gave you that new life. All of this, all that we see here, who is it that has done this work of salvation? It's God. And why has he done it? To display the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards you in Jesus Christ. God wants to be made famous by saving sinners. And he has done that. And if that is you, if you sit under his wrath, justly deserving his punishment, God is a loving father ready and willing to forgive you for your sin because that will make him glorious. And it will give you new life so that you may walk in the newness of life. That's what we learned at camp this week. Would you pray with me? Our God and our Father, you are truly great and truly glorious. Lord, we can take no credit for the salvation that you have offered to us in Christ, that you have completed in Christ. Though we have not lived as you have commanded us to live, Father, we fall short, dramatically short. You have provided to us salvation through your son, living a righteous life, yet still dying. The only one who never deserved any of the judgment for sin, your son Jesus took it all so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be made new through the resurrection in power. Lord, so that we will one day look forward to us as a new creation, having been started but not yet done, Lord, one day you will complete that work. And though our life is now hidden with Christ in God, one day we will see him face to face, our brother seated at your right hand to worship you forevermore for the work of salvation that you have accomplished. Lord, you have truly displayed the riches of your grace. And God, I beg that people would have seen that this week, that it would change the entire trajectory of their life, whether they've been a Christian for five minutes or for 50 years. God, would you make yourself glorious in our sight so that we would be completely content, throwing away our lives, throwing away our possessions, throwing away our money so that we can run for the one truly glorious thing in this world, which is yourself. Father, satisfy us. Let us see the riches that are with you. Oh God, we love you. Thank you for loving us first. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Scott from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online 
at mmbconline.org.